0: Hi, I'm Simone W. Darnson-Smith, and welcome to the Immigrant Experience in America. Are you a professional, new to the United States, and struggling to monetize the expertise you brought across the seas? Are you feeling misunderstood and out of touch because you're struggling to understand the unstated rules of the American culture? Each week, we'll take an in-depth look at the positive contributions immigrants are making to the American culture, marketplace, and life. Our intention is to serve as a bridge from your culture to the American culture, giving you a roadmap of tools and the language to understand the unstated rules of the American culture. Let's get started. Hello, listeners, and thanks for joining us again on another episode of the Immigrant Experience in America, where we amplify and humanize the experiences of immigrants in the United States and around the world. Today, we have for you a Haitian-American to discuss what the Haitian-American experience has been and current uh, state of affairs in Haiti. Her name is Jerianne Ulis.
1: Welcome, Jerianne. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you.
0: All right. So if you don't mind telling us a bit about your professional life, your personal life, and what brings you to the United States.
1: Yes, ma'am. Starting with the personal life, I am Ann Ulysses. I am a mother of one. My son is Christian. He's seven years old. And he's practically the reason why I sacrifice a lot because my dream is to make the world a better place for him. <laughs> Literally, just a kinder place for him to be more specific. And my parents, thank goodness, they're still living. And they're the biggest reason why I'm who I am today. And growing up in Haiti is very common that you have people, whether they're, they just made it to the middle class or they're in the upper middle class or the upper class, and there's a tendency to cultivate a superiority complex in your children. Oh, you can't, you know, you can't play with this child because he's poor. You can't date this one because he's poor. And I'm grateful that my parents, you know how the song started from the bottom, now we're here. And then everybody switches. And I'm grateful that my parents didn't switch up. Both of my parents, thank goodness, is I'm happy that they're still alive to see the results of the kindness and the respect that they cultivated in me. Because a lot of them don't get to see um, their children blossom in the values that they instilled in them. I was born in the States. I was an anchor baby. You know how that goes. <laughs> I don't have to explain that. So I was an anchor baby um, because my mom understood early on that Haiti is an unstable country. She was like, okay, if anything happens, I know I can just put you guys on a plane as American citizens and you'll be okay. That was the best decision um, she made, even though it was a difficult one for her at the time. And because out of all her friends and family, they all stayed in Haiti to have that support system. You know how supportive we are when people are giving birth, but she practically went alone in the states because she, my dad, was already showing signs of being involved in politics at the time. So she's like, oh, the way this country is, let me make sure I have an exit strategy for my children." Like I said, being a a good decision because in 2004, my father, who was an advisor to the president at the time. When the president got overthrown, everyone from that political party had to practically flee. If you were caught and you or your family, they were going after you, literally. And so it was very easy for my mom to put us on a plane and go travel with us to the States. So that's how I ended up in the States as political refugees, pretty much. We were on political asylum for four years until the next... A party came and it was safe for us to go back to Haiti. It was a hard transition for myself. One, it was in February. I was like, what in the world? I did not know it could be that cold uh, ever. In New York, the bullying was very annoying. They're immigrant children, right? Because we're in Esau. (laughs) But they were just as mean. And um, it was hard not knowing if my dad was alive and then coming to school. It was a private Christian school. A lot of our in the Haitian community, we believe in private education, private Christian education, and it was not a positive experience with the bullying and stuff stuff like that. I never fit in early on in the States. We left New York, finished eighth grade in New York. It was too cold for us. We went to Florida, which is why there's a lot of Haitians in Florida. My father didn't like it because he he says the lifestyle of the Haitians in Florida wasn't what he wanted for us. He's like, nope, you need to go somewhere where they push you. In Atlanta at the time, the Black community was really um, on the up and up. So he wanted something more rigorous for us. The education in Florida wasn't the best. I think at the time it was like number 40 something of all the states. So we've been in in Georgia since 2005. And yeah, I went into teaching, which carries into my professional life. I didn't want to be a medical doctor like my mom wanted me to be. I can't see people suffer. Typical Caribbean. And I went into teaching because I've heard a lot of abuse in the classroom um, for children. To me, schools are reflections of society. So if we're okay with violence and ignorance in the classroom from the teachers, then no wonder society is the way it is. Because after your home, your teacher, you know, your school is your next safe place. So I wanted to teach and kind of sort of re- help remove trauma from the learning experience for children. So I went into education, but made sure that I taught in Title I schools, which is low-income schools. And 2018, I visited my father in Haiti And I noticed that the hospital wasn't doing good, that I made the choice to stop teaching and protect his legacy because there was no way after dedicating so many years to the hospital and my grandmother ended up dying at the hospital, his mom, because we ran out of oxygen in 2018. So I'm like, okay, if your own mother dies at your hospital, that means you've gone as far as you could on your own. My other siblings, you know how the younger ones, they weren't interested in continuing or it's, it's more internet stuff for them apps whatever so if i didn't step in at that time then the hospital would shut down and it it was personal because i'm like no he sacrificed so much for the hospital i can't let that happen and then noticing how much it meant to the community there was nowhere else City soleil the biggest ghetto inner city in haiti the most all you have to do is google it and you'll understand the importance of the hospital in Soleil. No one wanted to really help him. So the past um, 20, before I stepped in, it was just him. He would invest up to 40% of his profit into the hospital to keep it going. And no one else was wanting to help. We couldn't count on the government. There's no government grants here. There's no SBA. I was his next line of defense to keep the hospital open. So I quit teaching and not knowing what I was doing. <laughs> If that wasn't the vision for my life. I just wanted my daycare and God gave me a whole hospital. Yeah, I, I founded the foundation. And what we've done is bring resources to the hospital. Every time I would go to Haiti on a quarterly basis, I would just listen to what the needs are and then go back to America and be like, hey, to my friends, like, hey, guys, this is what I need. Can you help? And then $20 here, $30 there, and my friends would donate and then over time, as people saw that, hey, I donated $30 for her to do this, and it actually happened, and I would send pictures. So I was like, okay, Papi, what, what next can we do? What else do you need? And he's like, well, I need this. And then I'd go back, and I built the trust factor because not a lot of people trust Haiti. So I slowly built the trust factor to the point to where now UNICEF was able to find out about our work, and they are our biggest partner now. Doctors Without Borders, The big guys are coming in, but it it took years of just showing people that we do what we say we're going to do. And what I tell people is that I'm not going to put my father's reputation at risk because in Haiti, it's so easy to hear people's names. A lot of people my age can't take center stage like I am because of the decisions that their parents made. So he spent 30 clean years in politics in Haiti, and I, I told people I'm not trying to tarnish his reputation, nor am I trying to tarnish mine, nor my son, because I, I, I'm i already saying, my telling my son, when money's old, are you going to help her with the hospital? He's like, yeah. So this is a legacy and I'm not trying to tarnish it at all, at all. So it took years of trust building, but um, I'm grateful. It's been difficult. A lot of emotional intelligence had to go in. My dad early on was like, if you think you're about to come to Haiti, crying for everything, and judgmental don't do it so he he put me in my place he wanted to make sure I had to earn his trust and respect and I've earned it and I'm getting the keys to the hospital I'm still being trained but I've earned the trust and respect so that's me in a nutshell
0: (laughs) so I have a few follow-up questions I'm thinking for listeners who don't know what an anchor baby is. Can you explain what an anchor baby is?
1: Yes, the anchor baby is an immigrant who comes to the United States towards the last trimester or or whatever country where there are better benefits, better opportunities, um, um, a higher quality of life. And you know that in cases of emergency, uh, a government isn't going to leave its citizen out. And they're less likely to separate mothers and their children. So it's for people who love their country, but understand the instability of their country or the missed opportunities that their countries can never offer. So anchor babies are the children born in the States or any developed country. Once they're at one month old, we get our passports. They go back to the country. And hopefully we never have to come back, go back to that place. But in in my case, we did have to go back.
0: I've heard the term birth tourism, right, so there's ah. folks who come from different places to like more developed places like the US or Canada, the UK, could be other places in Europe or Asia, mm-hmm. because they can afford to come in and they, you know, it's, it's literally like a, a legal thing where oh, I have wow. heard of cases of women from Russia coming over in droves, they stay in a hotel, they have big money and they give birth here so their children get the uh, citizenship of whichever country they want, mm-hmm. and and then they just go. I mean, they go back to their place and they leave their lives there, but their children get the citizenship of whichever country they choose to do that birth tourism. So it sounds kind of like the, a similar thing that you're explaining.
1: Yes, they're more financial stable <laughs> than the anchor oh. babies. So I wonder,
0: um, just for listeners to be who may not know the history of Haiti, who was in government during the time when your dad was advising the president? And what was the situation politically um, that kind of led to the coup d'état?
1: The president at the time was President um, Jean-Bertrand Aristide. The corruption at the time was getting out of hand. Um, instead of everyone coming together and create an agreement on how we can get out of this political crisis, And they just rather not speak to each other and argue with each other. And they they let things deteriorate to the point where the population had enough and the rioting got out of hand, the uh, kidnapping started to get out of hand, the unnecessary violence uh, started to get out of hand. America had to step in to bring some stability. And at the time, supposedly, the way to do that was to encourage a coup d'etat.
0: Oh, so there was some outside influence.
1: Oh, there's always, uh, oh, nothing in Haiti gets done politically. And that's what I'd like for people to understand. Nothing in Haiti gets done without Canada, U- a, a-, a USA, and France practically okaying it. Because we have politicians who, spineless, I call them spineless politicians who cannot make decisions without, they're, they're yes men. They're yes men. You just give them the money. And they'll do whatever. The the whole concept of putting your nation first is 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 with the types of leaders that we've had, it's impossible. So if America promises a couple thousands, a couple of million at the expense of the country, they'll do it. They'll do it.
0: In the history books, what is Haiti known for? I'm thinking about Toussaint. I'm thinking about the relationship with France and then, you know, payments that has been made over the years that probably contributed to the economic situation that the country still is in. Can you explain and put a little bit of context on that?
1: Yeah. When people bring up Haiti you or Google Haiti, one of the things that you'll hear us say is that the first free Black nation, we were colonized by France and everyone was really fighting for Haiti. We were in an amazing central location in the Caribbean practically between Southern, uh, South and North America. Amazing weather. So it's always been a place for, um, that all the colonizing countries really wanted, but France had the bigger say for longer. And in 1793, the independence war started. It ended in 1804. And uh, so 11 years, but everyone always talks about 1804. But to me, the emphasis should be on 1793 but because the way i understand it it's it's the last time we really came together the dark skinned haitians the mulatto haitians etc and 1804 and once we got that independence we started to turn on each other the light skin the mixed the dark skin and we we never got that back and um so yeah i, I the very first person to get assassinated when I'm ind- independent heroes was because he wanted to unite everyone i can't remember because i left so long ago but he he mentioned it like um, traitors he knew he would be betrayed and he would die um, by betrayal some betrayal and he ended up getting betrayed by his own because we we couldn't unite anymore we couldn't unite anymore since uh, 1793 and the had us pay for our own independence because of course we ruined their plantations and they lost access to their investment so we practically paid with 21 billion dollars we had to pay them for our independence as soon as we got our independence nobody wanted to trade with us so america shut us out i think russia was the only one russia was the only country that acknowledged our independence and didn't place an embargo on haiti so as soon as we got our independence, none of these other colonizing countries wanted to acknowledge our independence and no one traded with us. And then we had to pay $21 billion in some change. So we imploded financially. And because um, we were a, a slave country, you know, not everyone had access to education. So it was just poor decision after poor decision after poor decision. Fast forward, 80s, 90s. We didn't have a democracy at the time, but um, Americans during the Papa Doc and Baby Doc era, but starting in the 90s, democracy was pushed in Haiti, but no one really put any emphasis on education. So democracy became the worst thing that happened to Haiti because the president at the time, none of them were able to put Haiti first it was it became easy to, to to buy people buy votes and stuff like that because the population wasn't educated enough to vote so democracy is used as a double edged sword in Haiti but big picture that is that's how it's it's been we've we've paid for our own independence we haven't been able to recover every time there's elections we don't choose our presidents and if the president or a political um candidate seems to be able to you know motivate people to do better Something happens to them, if you know what that means. (laughs) Or there's a coup d'etat. But I blame Haitians first because someone in Haiti had to say yes first to open the door for all that international corruption. I always blame us first, but there's definitely some international iron fist and national iron fist that, that play a big role in how we've been since our independence.
0: And plus, Haiti has gone through a few natural disasters, right? I remember the, the earthquake was yes. huge. And, um, and then the most recent assassination of the... What's the current state? What are things like there? You know, you've been going down quite frequently. Mm-hmm. How is it to do business? How is it to find food? What's the security situation? Like, you know, how is it for everyday people?
1: Every day, we leave it up to God, to be honest. Security-wise, up until maybe two weeks ago, I see they're trying to put the police back in the street. But um, since the assassination of the president, even before that, the the gangs has been out of control. And the amount of guns that supposedly never get detected in the U.S. ports, the politicians and the private business owners who funded these gangs, they've lost control of these gangs. So we're all practically at the mercy of 12 to 18-year-old teenagers who are already hotheads and happy to have a gun in their hands. Because a lot of people dehumanize them. I try to add the psychological aspect to it. Everyone understands the school shooter because in, in the States because his daddy wasn't here. But nobody can understand that same Haitian kid who chooses this lifestyle year after year of dehumanization. So that's one thing I I do want to add the human aspect to these young men who have had far worse experiences in life than these school shooters had, but no one wants to give them grace. The speech is always like, oh, come and shoot them all. But I'm like, dang, but we want therapy for the school shooters? And anyway.
0: A much deeper conversation there. Yeah, yeah, it (laughs)
1: is. (laughs) It's so annoying. So we're at the mercy of these young boys. To go back to the point, we're at the mercy of these young boys. It's stressful. It doesn't seem like the unelected prime minister who, who stepped in after the president's um, assassination. He barely comes on TV. He ba- when he comes on TV, he's like, "Well, good luck." Like you know, that's pretty much how he speaks. And the police force, the few good police officers who are left. They don't get the supplies that they need. This is nothing but faith pretty much at this point. You leave your home and you're just like, God, you know exactly why I'm doing this. If this is my time, thank you for an amazing journey. But please don't let it be my time. And the thing is about Hades, the people who are still here, still fighting for better days, holding on for better days and trying to keep their businesses open. The concept of dying isn't the problem is the idea that there's no justice afterwards. It's just, you you died. And everyone knows who might have ordered the hit. Everyone knows. It's, it's a supporter. I keep saying Haiti, but I really want to say Port-au-Prince because Port-au-Prince mm-hmm. is, controls the entire country. And it's not fair to say Haiti because it is really the, the incompetent millionaires, billionaires, and politicians who are funding all of this. Every time I say Haiti, scratch that and think Port-au-Prince. But unfortunately, now the gangs have spread everywhere. And we know, the ones in Haiti right now, we know that these things happen in cycles. Every time this election season, it's intimidation season, but it's never been how it's been now because we've never had that many guns smuggled. And you have the Minister of Justice, You know, the Department of Justice, the, the head person of the um, Minister of Justice two and a half or three months ago He was caught with containers bringing guns and ammo. Wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's like you're here, you're literally like whatever it is that you believe in, you got to believe in it because there's nowhere to turn to for help. And the people who genuinely can help, um, they're too scared to do something about it. Yeah, so politically, there's nothing. So, of course, a lot of businesses have shut down. So a lot of the unemployment rate, we I can safely say for the whole country is ninety percent since uh, the president's assassination. Our good, which is our um, monetary system, currency, our good has the has devaluated has much so much value. It's ridiculous. We import almost everything. We export and produce nothing. There's no agriculture in Haiti. We import most of everything businesses are shutting down there's no jobs the people who can leave are leaving the people who can't stay are losing hope a lot of people who can't afford to leave by plane because they don't have visa or passport they're the ones that we're hearing about dying by the dozens they're the ones that you saw on at the border i think it was may of last year yes Yes,
0: at the u.s border
1: at the u.s borders so these are the people who just couldn't hang on in haiti anymore they safely, thank God, made it to South America, and somebody said the U.S. is giving papers, and then they all just they just tried to get to the U.S. It's hard, even for us who are um financially blessed. It's hard every time somebody comes over, even if you think they got it. You we offer food, you know, no one's working, no wow. one's working, and if if we didn't have this hospital and UNICEF coming in and stuff like that, it'd be hard for us too. So we try to bless people as much as we can, but it's hard. But the past two weeks, there's more traffic in the streets. Gas has been practically controlled by gangs for since like September 18-ish. And last week, the, the November 3rd, was when the government finally showed display of force to kick the gangs out of the area that control the gas terminal. But really for, from September 15 up until last November 3rd, we were paying gas up to $36 a gallon on the black market because the wow. gangs control. Yeah. The gangs controlled it. None of the gas stations were open. So you, you had to go through them and just like the food prices increased by 30%, they had free range to increase the gas. Yeah. School hasn't been opened. School was supposed to open September, September 5th, the middle-class upper middle-class children who have access to internet, these things. They can do virtual school, but the children, the low-income children, the inner-city kids, which are the children my foundation focuses on, the hospital uh, focuses on, they haven't been in school. And these are the kids who are going to be easily manipulated years later with $10 to go kill someone, $50 to go burn a building. They don't even understand who they are as an individual because they've never been to school they don't even understand who they are as Haitians because everything is taught in French and barely anyone understands French. It's like there's a war against education, there's a war against healthcare, there's a war against housing, against the lower class. Um, just like in the 2010 earthquake, all these people who lost their homes, low-income people who lost their homes, their homes were never rebuilt with the money that was donated to these big organizations. They created more ghettos, and it's those kids who are 15, 20, 23 years old holding the gun. So I, I see them trying to do the same thing again now. So that in 15, 20 years, we have the same gang problems. And there, there's a war against the lower lo, the lower class. It, it's heartbreaking. And now everyone's like, oh my God, why are they doing this to us? And they're killing everybody. They have no mercy. And I'm like, y'all, man, they watch their grandparents suffer. Their mom suffer. They're suffering now. And they're at the age where they get to see things on the internet. They have desires for themselves and their children and nothing's going to change. And now we want them to care when we've not cared for them for generations. I'm like, it's, I don't understand how Haitians keep thinking that people, like our actions today, we can't disconnect them to tomorrow.
0: Wow. I know there's another side to Haiti because yeah. Two ships are coming in. There's a wealthy side to the island. that People are living very
1: well there. What What is that world like? Then that's why I was saying not to say Haiti, to say Port-au-Prince. These are the other departments. We have 10, instead of states, we have 10 departments. And Port-au-Prince is practically the one that controls everything. If the fuel doesn't come out of Port-au-Prince, no one gets it. It's because the oligarchs who control everything. Um, you have like two percent of the populations who are multimillionaires and billionaires. They control every single sector that you can think of. No one's ever gonna go after them. Well, rumor has it that they're the ones who fund everything that you see happening. But who's getting punished is the foot soldiers. It's never, you know, it's never them. So what you see up north, the cruise ships, they're in northern Haiti. And the cruise ships go to Labadie, which is a plot of land that um, I can't remember what president, if they sold it or they rented it. But Haitians don't have access to it. So it is very limited up there. But other than Labadzi up north, there's really no, no other touristic um, opportunities. But even the wealthy now, those who fund it, they have money to wait it out. This can keep happening and getting worse. They boast about making millions in Haiti and never investing a dime. It's not like in the United States where you have a successful business owner who's like, yo, let me, I'm grateful. Let me give back. No, they they, they don't care um, about any of that stuff. So even the super wealthy, um, they've either left Haiti because now it's, it's gotten too uncomfortable for them everyone's feeling it whether you're wealthy or not everyone's feeling it because we've all been stuck home these young kids they don't care they'll shoot at anybody they'll try to get anybody and so whether you're rich or not it's it's rough right now
0: so it sounds like there's really no middle class basically so really rich really poor
1: and no middle class if there's a haitian middle class they're elsewhere they're in france they're in canada they bust their tails to be in the middle class and they never come back to Haiti and you can't blame them. They suffered so much. And that's one of my dreams for the with the foundation is to recreate the middle class. You know, with our doctors, we only have 111, but I'm like, okay, how can we increase their pay? And, you know, and just trying to, it's not much. I wish I could be my own SBA, <laughs> but Uh, We're we're doing what we can to have as many young people as possible in the medical field, in the education field, in the skilled trade field, and create opportunities for them to go to school and work for us and we can pay them decent wages. Yes, of course. At least an incentive for them to stay because I'm
0: sure there are opportunities elsewhere as a medical doctor.
1: Mm -hmm. Our hospital for months has been the only hospital in Port-au-Prince that's been fully operational and growing. Many, even the ones recognized internationally before us, they've all shut down or operating just on a, a part-time basis. But no, there's no, there's really no opportunities. Unless there's those big international organizations that have projects that they're running and that has been limited, again, no one's really going out. No one's risking their life as much to go out for anything because of these right, gay members. Right. Yeah, so... There's this one of our tenants here, and he was leaving Haiti two weeks ago, and he broke down. He was like, I'm an engineer, Jerriann. I'm an engineer, and I'm having to leave, not because I don't want to work. I'm ready to work. I'm ready to do anything, but there's no opportunities for me, and I'm going to the States. I'm going to New York. It's going to be cold, and he broke down, and it's there, there are no opportunities. There are none.
0: It sounds really stressful and really dire there. Yes. on the island, my, my sincere sympathies. But, and I'm just wondering, so generally though, for like Haitian, the Haitian world, in a world where things are flourishing, I mean, I'm hoping that there's somewhere on the island where the culture is flourishing. What is it like? Like what's the, what's fun things that people do? What's the food like, the culture, music? You did mention earlier that schools are, use French as their teaching language, what most of the population does not speak French. So can you speak a little bit to what the language that's spoken in Haiti?
1: First thing is Haitians aren't violent people, contrary to popular belief, because two years ago, these same young boys weren't doing this. To get to where you see now in the propaganda, the news and all that stuff, it, it took a lot of money to incentivize them to get to that point. But usually we are very loving, welcoming people. It's unfortunate that compassion hasn't been cultivated. They can't reciprocate what they haven't had. But on a good day, house parties, we go to each other's homes, um, good music. That's what fun looks like now in Port-au-Prince. I can only speak in Port-au-Prince. On the days, things seem calm. You go to each other's parties. But right now, there's no restaurants. You, you don't really go to restaurants. There are no clubs, no nothing. But when things were okay, we go to the beach every weekend. Every weekend, there's public beaches, the people who can't afford it. like It's so cute. You would see them like 12 in the back cup in the car, just having a good time. We're all just going to the beach anytime. And if you could afford it, you go to the resorts um, or you go up to the mountains and music. We're, we're very artistic, very, very artistic. Everything we do revolves around Haitian music, good music. But it's been months since we haven't been able to do that. It's just try to make it to your neighbor as quickly as possible. And everyone's try to, tries to be home by five o'clock. But when everything's okay, we're at Haitians are at the beach as much as possible. We're in um, we go to different departments and um, go to rivers, go to waterfalls we're very connected to nature. Very, very connected to nature. And it's a shame to see that we're losing that. Um, and yes, a, a school, school uh, education is used as a weapon. Like I say, because if you have a democracy with people that you can influence to do anything, it's not really a democracy. But Americans love to push that word. They are spreading democracy around the world, but they're putting none of the infrastructures in place to ensure that it's a constructive democracy like in their country. It's just democracy. We're going to pretend everybody can vote, but let's make sure the education system sucks enough so they can believe anything that they believe that we say or that we put out. So French is used as a primary, they call it the official language, but Creole, Haitian Creole, which is a um, combination of French, a little bit of Portuguese, like a little bit of all the languages of the colonizers that were in Haiti. And the slaves combined them all in their natural, uh, in their original um, African languages. They created Haitian Creole. Haitian Creole is an actual language. It's not a patois. And we have rules. Like I tell people, uh, I remember a book I read in school. Patois is just like Creole, but there's no written rules. So Papa Doc, which was the dictator, he formalized our Haitian Patois into Haitian Creole by adding an alphabet, um, um, grammatical, syntactic rules and stuff like that. So, but it's not spoken in schools. Children get beaten in schools for speaking it um, with each other. Um, they use French as an indication of status and knowledge, where even if you know what you're talking about, the second you say it in Creole, you're not taken seriously. But the second you say it in French, even if you're saying nothing. So yeah, even our own language is used against us in Haiti.
0: And the music, is it compas?
1: Yes, ma'am, the music is compas. Um, and there's the different types of compa, the compa love and the, the hype compas. And we have a tubadu, tubadu, which is almost like Cuban, mixed between Cuban and Brazilian style music in Haiti. Right. And, and so, that.
0: Right. I'm thinking about black rice. Uh, are there other yeah. things that are
1: pretty popular there? Yes. Black rice, which is mushroom. You, you boil the mushroom and then the water becomes bl- black and then you boil the rice in the black thing um black rice rice and beans um guillo which is fried pork tasso which is fried a uh, tasso tasso kabrit, which is fried jesus christ goat tasso beef, which is fried beef a lot of our food is fried because um, electricity is a luxury in haiti so fried food spoil spoil less than boiled food so because a lot of people don't have access to a um, Come on in. refrigerator. Yeah, refrigerate, Or even if you have it, there's no electricity. So we fry food a lot. So our health, there's a lot of high blood pressure in Haiti. A lot, a lot of high blood pressure. We see that a lot at the hospital, especially in the low-income communities. A lot. But in um, food, um, well, every Sunday on January 1st, we have soup jumu, which is a kind of sort of pumpkin soup, our independent soup. And in Haiti, it's kind of sweet. You'll see Saturday is our bouillon day. And then Sundays is our soup day. Wednesday is, I don't know how everyone kind of sort of did it. It became a thing. But we all kind of sort of have specific national dishes that we cook in our homes nationally. But Saturday is usually bouillon. And then Sunday is usually soup. And then Fridays is like the fried food, cheap day type stuff for the family.
0: So another question that I think has a gap there is, You mentioned that your dad worked for, I think it's President Aristide, but then the hospital got started. Did he study medicine? How did the, what's the story behind starting the hospital?
1: No, he did not study medicine. Neither did I. My mom is the only one who's a nurse. It it started, it really started in the 80s. He was studying to become a priest. At the time, the Catholic Church was heavily involved in social, in community development. So a lot of people around that time, they went into, um, into Catholic Church um, to become nuns and priests to be able to give back to their communities or whatever communities they were assigned to. He was assigned to this Soleil to develop an agricultural program. And during the agricultural program, that internship, he noticed that there were no, um, no medical centers when the farmers got hurt or if some, you know, a farmer's kid got sick. So he's like, okay, him and the other nuns, the young men and young women studying to become nuns and priests, um, they're like, okay, let's just do a little center in um, clinic. They put their money together, they opened the clinic, um, put money together to pay people, or they have people volunteer a few days a week. And early 90s, the situation in hey, that's where AC became president the first time. And the situation politically started to deteriorate. There was he had a coup d'etat then too. And all the other nuns and priests left. It was too dangerous for them. So Sitesole was always poor, but it wasn't always dangerous. It wasn't until the 90s where all the sugar oligarchs, the they started to shut down all their businesses at once. And all these people, they lost their jobs. And of course, no income, then violence rises. So, But he was the only one. He decided he wasn't going to leave, um, shut down the clinic. But he had to leave seminary school. His father died when he was 23. So all his brothers and sisters, all 10 of them became went under his care. So the income from seminary school wasn't enough from that internship. So he quit and became an engineer, worked and built a good majority of the roads in Port-au-Prince. And every time, whatever jobs he could get, um, up to 40% of the profit, he invested it into the hospital because it's in Cite de Soleil. Um, people would tell us it's too dangerous and it's not worth it. Why are you doing this? He's like, whoa, like these are people who live there. The news tells you about gangs, gangs, violence, violence, violence. But just like in the ghetto, you have that mom, that single mom who's doing everything she can to keep her kid out of trouble. Or those brothers and sisters who lost their parents and that big brother, big sister is doing everything she can. So the media has us think about one aspect, but there's everything else behind it. And my dad is like, I'm not leaving them. So, and then over the years, little by little by little, he added on to the hospital. But like I said, when I came in 2018, I'm like, all right, he he has the skeleton. It's time for me to to create efficient systems for things to get better. That's how he he got the hospital.
0: So I'm wondering when you transitioned after your mom, after they quit a and you moved with mom to the US. What was it like adjusting? Did you speak English? What was it like adjusting to the US culture for you know from Haiti after leaving?
1: It was hard. Adjusting was hard. She thought she was doing well. I appreciate now I'm thinking that now that I'm a mom. She didn't tell us we were leaving indefinitely. She was like, oh we just go say bye. We're going for the weekend for Carnaval weekend. Why are we packing all of that stuff? And I didn't didn't pay attention. We would do that. We'd just go to New York or go to Florida and come back. And I was like, okay, that's odd. But I just left it at that. Why are we going to say bye to everyone? Like, why is everyone crying? You know, but again, you're not thinking about it. So it was especially hard because I wasn't prepared for that. And we did know a little bit of English. My parents, every summer, they would send us to summer camps in the States. Uh, The schools that we went to um, taught English. It was a hard adjustment emotionally because I kept waiting to go back. And I think maybe it had to happen that way because because I never got to say goodbye, I've always wanted to go back. And that cord was never cut, thank God. So, yeah, it, it was a hard adjustment. The bullying, like I said. And when I moved to Georgia, I was walking to school. When Haitians go to the States, we call each other just come. Like I just got here, it's just come. So I was a just come walking to school. And I can see this truck. It was a camo, camouflage, a Jeep Wrangler with the tops out. And I'm walking to school and there's two white boys in the Jeep. And they spit at us and they say, go back to Africa N word with the G-G-E-R. And I'm like, whoa, that was my first time realizing that I was black. Yeah, when, in America. Georgia, in Georgia, mm-hmm, Swanee, Georgia, 2005, August two Because school opened like what August 6th? And that experience, I was like, wait a minute now, I'm what? What is that? You know, and because we've always been Haitians and Haitians, they have to say that culturally we uphold ourselves to a certain standard of um, acting, dressing, and you know, to show that they always try to show that we're not the same as African Americans in terms of how we behave and how we dress and culturally the things that we value. And then when I moved to the States, I'm like, white people don't care. They just see your skin and that's it. So that was my first wake up call that, okay, this is not a friendly place. And that day I knew that no matter what, I would never always live in the States. I would never have an American dream because this is not home. That day is why I'm in Haiti today because I always it became the day I needed an exit strategy. I wanted to go back home, and I was not going to allow myself to be subjected to that type of disrespect ever again. Yeah, it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy at all. Going to college in South Georgia, uh, it was great experience, but you you see the discrimination, the professors. Yeah, it wasn't easy, but everything had to happen to solidify my resolve to go back home, because I'm I, I refuse to die. One, I'm not gonna die in the cold. It wasn't easy, but it needed to happen because I wouldn't be here if it didn't happen exactly the way it happened. That
0: that was probably quite traumatizing for a young lady mm-hmm. trying to just focus on going to school and to deal with such heavy issues, right?
1: Yes, yes. And not even understanding why. I'm like, what did we do to you? I'm just walking to school and I'm like right. go back to Africa. I've never been there. And I would have been there if you didn't take me out of there. So it's,
0: Right, yeah. Another story for another right. day. Yeah.
1: <laughs> So it just didn't like that. That day, yeah, it, it set the tone for the rest of my life.
0: Have you been able to show up then? So you went to university, graduated, decided you wanted to do teaching. Have you been able to really show up as your authentication immigrant self, you know, in the United States and, you know... You mentioned bullying when you were in this private school after moving from Haiti. Like, How do people, you know, recently after moving away from home, I've been quite exposed to a number of things that I wasn't aware of socially. And then Mm -hmm. when I moved to Georgia, somebody started telling me that, you know, like in the Northeast, like there's somewhat of, how do I say... A stereotype or a rift between Blacks and the way Haitians are treated. Talk, if you can speak to some of that, and why were you bullied?
1: I mean, why do kids bully? You know, it's just everyone's operating from a place of pain. Like I said, I was in an ESOL class, and I'm guessing we are all hurting. My parents, it was a transition period for all of us. And instead of making sure we had psychologists and all that stuff, they just put us all in the ESOL class. You know, So our emotional needs weren't met. Like I said, Haitians always try to show that they hold themselves up to a higher standard. And I think that creates a rift. They can be very judgmental. And that creates a rift, especially like now when we realize when you grow up in Haiti and everyone's Black and everyone's thriving and then you go somewhere else and then there's that separation. They lump you together with every other nationality and you see how the media is portraying the African-American community. So our parents as a defense mechanism, you know, they, they really tried to separate us in trying to help us and um, not be treated as an rs Like, you know, they see all the Black people and um, they create a separation, a superiority complex between the Haitian community and the African-American um, communities. It's deeper. It's deeper than the children. And I can't say why I was being bullied, but I can say everyone was operating. We we're all immigrants. Everyone, everyone wants to be home in their home country. So we we're all operating from a place of hurt, adjusting to a new country. I'm sure they were being bullied, too. So I was a new kid, me and my brother. So I guess it was easier to pick on us at the time. And, you know, it wasn't popular to be Haitian and broken at, until recently anyway. So, yeah. Oh,
0: yeah. So do you feel like migrating, leaving Haiti and and coming to study in the U.S., has it been worth it migrating and getting whatever professional credentials you've gotten and exposure and now being able to go back and support your dad's legacy?
1: Yes, yes, it definitely has been worth it. I wouldn't be who I am today without the education that I received in the States. I'll give that to America. The opportunities are there. But unfortunately, those opportunities are there because they destabilize our country, remove the opportunities in our country. So we have no choice but to see the opportunities there as the only way up there. But um, yeah, I am grateful for the education that I've gotten, the things that I've learned, the conferences I was able to apply, to go to and attend. Um, I am grateful, but it never felt like home.
0: I'm thinking about maybe a Haitian American person who might be listening to your interview when this gets posted. Mm -hmm. And if you could speak to any particular faux pas, which is like a social mishap or mistake that you may have made while you were here. And what would you encourage your fellow Haitian Americans like not to do socially to kind of keep them out of, you know, Mm -hmm. sort of settings or sort of conflicts with people socially?
1: The number one thing I would say is don't be a part of the people who's negatively about Haiti socially, because that's where you get into, to me, the biggest arguments. We people don't speak on things that you don't know. Like when I speak on things, I'm not a hundred percent sure. I'm like, okay, go, you know, go fact check me, please. Like it's along the lines of what I'm saying, but go get the details. And don't be a part of the people that speak negatively about your home, because when it's all said and done, when you look at the crime rate in the DR, when you look at the crime rate in other countries, they're much higher in Haiti. And there's a specific reason why we're ours is in the in front of everyone is because we speak negatively of Haiti more, more than anything. And most of the arguments I've gotten into socially is with other Haitians. I'm like, dang, like this is your home. You know, educate yourself first before I speak negatively of um home. And to stay out of trouble within the States, I would say don't be judgmental. Like our parents, they're operating from a place of pain. So we don't have to be as judgmental, as cold. I don't say cold hearted, but as cold to other cultures and other ways ways of life, especially when it comes to the African-American community. I had to understand the impact that the 80s had on them. Like Haiti, we had poverty, but the drugs that were intentionally introduced to the African-American in the 80s, We didn't have that. So that pain that they're operating for is so much more deeper than us. So try to understand others, give grace to other nationalities and understand that whatever it is that you see on TV and on the news, it's intentional. It's set to separate us. So go do your research before you open your mouth. You don't have to have an opinion on everything. You can just listen and just leave it at that. So that's what I would say.
0: Yes, very well said to give grace and listen more then we want to respond or share our own, which is why we have the space here is to ask people from different places, different worlds that we're not exposed to. Like, tell me your story. We're creating a human library rather than just taking it from a TV screen. Hear mm-hmm. it from somebody who's actually walked the
1: walk. You know. And I would say too, um, I have an eleven thirty, but in. Um, To start looking at people for who they are. So after that guy, those boys spit at us, um, I shut off in white people completely. That was my first and practically last experience. And then this work has, has shown me that I have to look at people for who they are. The same way there are Haitians and Black people who are completely against their community There are some who love their communities as well. The same way there are racist other nationalities, there are others who are genuinely kind people. So I've learned, I've matured enough to learn that, um, look at people for who they are. And the whole black, white, like that's all media trying to separate people, look at their character. And now I'm more in a space where I'm interested in who you are. As opposed to what you look like, because people are going to do what people are going to do is just focus on the character so we can move past all of this, all the smoke, all the little ways that people try to divide us that don't matter. Um, And let's just focus on who that person is at the core. And there'll be way less social problems.
0: Right. That's good wisdom there. So it said that success leaves clues. What do you know now that you wish you did at the start of your immigrant journey?
1: It's okay not to fit in. I was a little nerd and I came to the States and I wanted to, one day we a lot of Haitians. So, you know, people are tribal. So I, I gravitated towards the African-American community and I wanted to change how I talk, change how I dress, aim to try to fit in. And that's where most of the problem came, you know, when you lose your authenticity. And I wish I knew early, early on that it's completely okay to be that little nerd and to like nerds. I don't have to like the bad boys and the, you know, um, it's, it's okay not to fit in. It it pays off to me. It pays off in the future. Not, not to fit in. That's really what I wish I could tell my younger self, like keep not fitting in. It's
0: okay. For those who are, might be younger and struggling listening to your story. It can be hard at times because I, I relate to what you're saying as well. So I wonder then just to wrap up for today, what final advice may you have for immigrants in general who are considering migrating to the U.S. or any other country, for for instance? Maybe there's a push factor, for example, if there's a war, there's a natural disaster, political unrest in their home country, and they have to consider leaving, or perhaps they're making a choice, right? There's a pull factor where there's a job opportunity in the U.S. or somewhere else that's pulling them. What advice would you say to make their experience in the United States fruitful one? What would you lend any advice that you
1: have? To me, it would be not to turn your back on home because you could be as successful as you can be. But if you completely forget where you're from, to me, you, you're you not successful. It's not a complete experience. If you can go back home to help, go back home. If the experience is so traumatizing that you cannot go back home, Find a trusted in grassroots organization, you know, the the mom and pops, the little sisters, the little brothers at the community level where you are who are genuinely trying to help. My biggest thing is not to turn your back on home and give back. If you can go back and be that human resources, go back and volunteer, be that person that your community back home can look up to and do not speak negatively on your home because all of that effect, if you turn your back on home, no matter what you tell yourself, America will never. You will have your home. You'll have. It won't be home if that makes sense. It's not home. So what your heritage, what your grandparents left for you, that little man, and um, your great grandparents, that's your home. Fight for your home as much as possible. Protect your home as possible while you're trying to build your life abroad. Make life back home a little more. Improve the quality of life for someone back home, and um, so that you know that. Um, you're protecting your heritage, even if you're doing away, if you're doing it from afar. But to me, to have a complete full circle experience abroad, it requires that you give back to the people who can't do it without you. That would be my advice.
0: So as you climb, you try to pull up, right? That's yes. usually the encouragement, uh, giving back a bit to yes. your community and those who are not able to have the opportunities that you may have so to, to finally today, if you'd like to, we're going to put a call to action out there for people who are able to financially support what you're doing in Haiti, for people who might be able to support in any other way, the need that exists in the medical community and the, the gap that you're trying to fill. How do people find you online? How do they find your services? How do they support you? Just put some details out there as well. We will get more details from you and put in the show notes, but Mm -hmm. a call to action for anybody who might listen to your episode and might want to support what you're doing. How do they find you?
1: Yeah. So um, to summarize what I'm doing in Haiti is doing my very, very best to move the hospitals and the schools that we support out of survival mode. It's hard to be creative. It's hard to become sustainable if you're literally trying to make payroll every month, if you're trying to have enough money to pay teachers and get supplies every month. I want these hospitals and schools to be in the position where, like my dad, for example, now he's thinking big, big picture, long term, but it's because he can take a deep breath now. So it's hard to be creative when you're in survival mode. So I want to move our communities out of survival mode towards sustainability The foundation's website is Foundation. so CHFFoundation.com. And you'll see, I did the website, it's nothing, nothing fancy, but you'll see the big picture of what we do. And the call to action would be to please make a donation, whatever it is that you can make. If you can become a monthly donor, I don't care if it's $5, $10, $20, $100, whatever it is that you can make on a monthly basis, hopefully for a year, that puts us closer to sustainability, knowing that, okay, that's five less dollars to worry about. I can plan a little better. We can become more efficient. My goal is to implement strong business practices, because I've noticed if we were able to make that much progress in four years, good business plans, business models, and business systems work in Haiti too. So these donations are not just to help that little girl get food, but it's to help these hospitals and schools operate better, to offer better service to their community. We try to create jobs for people. We send them to school. We send our staff to school, etc. To find me personally, um, Instagram is what I'm most active on. Um, it's Karine K. A-R-E-E-N, as in Nancy, underscore Ulysses, U-L-Y-S-S-E. And you can DM me. Wi-Fi in Haiti sucks, um, so I I don't see it often. But um, Instagram is the best way, DM to see me. And I mean, to contact me and um, the website as well, if you use the message on there. But monthly donors is definitely what we need. So we can plan long-term because there's no way. So we can have a five-year plan and work towards that. And it sounds like you're, you're probably the only hospital that's operable,
0: is what you were saying,
1: right? Yes, ma'am, we are. And the people really don't have it. We don't like to offer free services to people, but they really, like they. we like to say, they don't got it. They haven't been to work in months. Um, a lot of the, the jobs where they could have gone to work, the founders, um, the business owners left Haiti, and they, they didn't position the business to be able to function without them, which is one of the things I... My vision for this foundation is get the hospital and the sc- that first hospital, first school, okay to operate without us so we can move on to the next hospital and do it again and re- like fix and flip hospitals and schools throughout Haiti. But yeah, we are the only ones, and which is why UNICEF and all the big guys now, they're really paying attention to us. They're like, whoa, how are you able to make this happen? But we need, they're very specific about what they help. You're like, well, you got UNICEF, you don't need help. No, they're very specific. They're like women and children. A hospital is way more than women and children. So it's going to take all of us for a very long time to to get it done.
0: It seems like you find your calling on uh, indirectly, right? Uh, this <laughs> sounds like such a, a lifelong project that you are pouring yourself into. And, and I'm sure being led by the divine to figure this yeah. out. It's way bigger than you. So I can imagine every day you wake up and trying Stress. to figure out. You know what I mean?
1: <laughs> yeah. Every day I wake up stressed, but <laughs> with a smile on my face. It's it's yeah. a big responsibility. I read this book. It's like, don't try to feel the big man's shoes. I'm definitely not trying to do, I cannot do it the way my dad did. But it's like, this is big. Because, you know, I want to, I would love, what? I would love to have someone say, here's a million dollars. And maybe say, papi, here's a million dollars. Just to see what he would do with it. You know, like when you get older, our parents become our babies. (laughs) So, I would love to see his dream. Like if he could just, just put it all because he fought for this moment so hard and I'd like to see all of it come true. So it's stressful and, but it's, it's worth it. It's definitely worth it.
0: Right. Well, God bless you, my dear. You have a huge heart and We wish you much success and, you know, we welcome you back anytime that you need access to the audience. And we hope that people who listen will find it in their heart to make a donation. We'll post on social media, we'll release the episode.
1: Even if they don't donate financially, just to educate themselves on Haiti and to be part of the few who refuse to accept that sob story narrative. There are great people in Haiti doing great work. It's just that the people who are ruining the country, they're louder, they're more violent, they're bolder, they have more weapons, but um, there are uh, millions more good people in Haiti. They're just scared. They're just scared. And what I'm trying to do with the foundation through projects and stuff like that is to give them a voice like, here's this education project I'm trying to do. How many small business owners can I hire in that project? You know, The people that I know would do well, would do right and stuff. So just... If it's not financial, the kind words, the supportive words, sharing positive things about Haiti, that goes a long way in the mindset. That goes a long way.
0: But thank you so much for sharing your time with me.
1: Thank you so much. Have a great day. Good to have a blessed and positive day.
0: Tune in next week for another episode of The Immigrant Experience in America. As this is a new podcast, We welcome any and all support. If you have not done so already, subscribe on the Apple Podcast app, Google Podcast app, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also support us by completing a five-star rating and review and sharing our podcast with your friends, family, and circle of influence.